What's up, everybody? How you doing? I'm not really asking you that. Yeah, because we, we, I know you, you would lie, just like I would. We'd be like, how you doing? you say, I'm doing good. And it's not really a lie because nobody's really asking when you're passing them on the street or when you're hit, you see them in the gas. How you doing? It's just another way of saying hi. Nothing wrong with that. We don't really answer it. But, uh, you know, uh, when we do answer that question these days, what I'm finding, when we're being honest, is most of us are not doing that great. Like most of y'all and definitely me, most of us uh, are struggling. <laughs> struggling spiritually, um, struggling emotionally, struggling financially. Uh, people are discouraged or depressed or anxious or angry. People are frustrated at their circumstances or they are wanting to just give up on society. There are a thousand different reasons why so many of us are hurting and are burdened. And it's not just like, oh man, it's, we live in a, in a chaotic world, which we do. But our lives are chaotic. It's not just the world, right? And, and if, if chaos isn't the word, then, then maybe, um, maybe it's just painful or incomplete right? Whether it's circumstantial afflictions or sin, your sin, that can sometimes like bring on a whole world of trouble, or maybe you're suffering as a consequence of someone else's sin, or maybe it's just evil in the world. Like there's a lot going on that has seemingly afflicted a lot of us and, and driven us to the point of throwing our arms up and saying, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. And it could be hard it can be hard to kind of get our bearings in these days for some of us, most of us, most of you, I think. What we need is a way to understand what it is that we're going through. We need some sort of filter, some sort of mechanism by which we can make sense of everything that's going on around us and in our lives. Making sense of it lifts our head. Allows us to get our bearings and move forward. We're going to get that interpretive tool today as we go back to Revelation, looking in chapter 11, specifically verses 15 through 19. As we look at the end of this vision of the seven angels with the seven trumpets. And here is what I want us to learn and hold on to. And I want us to work this out in our own hearts and minds throughout the week, okay? Here's the principle. The righteous rule and the gracious presence of Jesus Christ is the comfort and the hope of every Christian, or at least it needs to be. It's supposed to be. The righteous rule and gracious presence of Christ is the comfort and the hope of every Christian. So just so you understand what I'm saying, there are at least two principles or truths that both comfort us in this life and give us hope for the next. And these two truths are the righteous rule of Jesus and the gracious presence of Jesus. That's where we're going today. Look with me at Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. 
Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, help us to understand this vision, the end of this vision in particular. Help us to see the relevance of understanding not just a vision, but specifically the relevance of the return of Christ and the day of judgment. Comfort us, change us, and teach us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for us to get to this principle and properly understand it, we need to do a little bit of setup because we are in a book that's a little bit crazy. It's a little bit hard to understand, at least comparatively to other books in the Bible, and there's always a lot going on. So the book of Revelation is fundamentally a series of visions, right? The book of Revelation is a series of vision. It's vision leading into the next vision, leading into the next vision. So it's not just one big vision. It's multiple visions that are recorded by John But all of these visions carry the same theme. In fact, the theme of the entire book of Revelation reflected in these visions is simply this. We've been saying it throughout the whole series. The theme is the victory of Jesus Christ and his church over the devil and the world. In fact, you could even say it like this. The themes that run through all of these visions are the victory of Christ and his church over the devil and his world. Because as we'll see, This world lies in the hands of the evil one. Too much? Stay with me, because we'll get to that in a little bit. So, the theme of this book in all of these visions is that Christ and his people will persevere through this corrupt world amidst all of the evil, the accusations, and the persecution, and wind up victorious in the end when Jesus returns. Now, at this point in the book of Revelation, we are looking at this trumpet that is about to be blown by one of the angels. So, there is this vision that John records, and it's seven angels, each holding a trumpet. So, seven angels with a trumpet, so seven trumpets, and they're about to to blast these these trumpets. Now, these This goes all the way back to chapter 8, verse 6. Okay, so all the way back to chapter 8, verse 6, one of these visions begins. It's the vision of the angels with the trumpets. And with each trumpet that is sounded, there is a revelation that comes with it. And it's a revelation of what God has done, a revelation of what God is doing, and a revelation of what God is going to do. Right, so with each trumpet blast, there is another aspect of the vision that communicates a truth about what is happening in the world today. So let me summarize these for you. 
The first angel blows the first trumpet and uh, there is hail and fire. Hail and fire fall from the sky onto the earth and a third of the earth is destroyed. There is a, a second trumpet uh, that is blasted and there is then a burning mountain that is thrown into the sea and it kills a third of the oceanic life. Then the third trumpet is sounded and there's a falling star from heaven that falls on our clean waterways, right? And it poisons a third of the water. It makes it undrinkable and many people are dying. And then the fourth trumpet is sounded and the sun and the moon and the stars lose a third of their brightness. You see the, 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 the sort of the continuity here. In these first four trumpets, we get these dramatic apocalyptic pictures of destruction in the world. Not total destruction, partial destruction because it's only a third. And what we're, what's being communicated to us is that in these natural disasters and these partial destructions that are happening in the world, we are getting a preview and a promise that judgment is coming for the wicked. All these natural disasters do not impact everybody in the same way. And not everybody who is negatively impacted by a natural disaster is being judged by the Lord as a wicked person. But such natural disasters and catastrophes that happen in the world are always, at least in general, a preview and a picture of God's judging, coming judgment against the wicked. That's what's being communicated in the first four trumpets. Then the fifth trumpet is sounded and now it's different because when this trumpet goes we have these demonic forces that seem to be unleashed and and they are tormenting the wicked and in fact in when the sixth trumpet is sounded they're not just tormented these demonic forces are triumphant over the wicked so in other words we have natural disasters that give us a picture of judgment but then in in these fifth and sixth trumpets it's a spiritual attack fueled by satan that is a kind of judgment that they brought upon themselves. It's like you pursue idolatry and false religion and all of the false promises that false religions give, right? That every religion gives. That you're gonna be healthy or wealthy or happy or made whole, right? That you can be complete, that you don't need God, that you only need yourself or you only need this way or you need this new God or this new thing. All of those false religions are promising freedom, but what they ultimately do is enslave you and destroy you. So as these trumpets are sounded and these, these pictures of what's happening in the world are communicated, we begin to get a very heavy, like, wow, the world is crazy and dark and there's catastrophic damage being done and it's a lot. So before we even get to the seventh trumpet in this vision, we take a break. We take a break, there's an interlude and there are two connected visions in there that interrupt us going from the sixth trumpet to the seventh and final trumpet. Now, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time rehashing, I'm not gonna spend any time rehashing these two uh, other mini visions because um, we just went through them. But the first I preached on a couple of weeks ago, uh, it's a vision of the angel with the scroll in his hand. You can go back and listen to that. Um, and Jimmy, Pastor Jimmy last week preached on the two witnesses. Now, both of those visions that are interrupting the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Those were designed to encourage the church who is receiving these words and reading this revelation, who are probably burdened and like thinking like, this is really heavy, this is really dark, wow, it's all judgment. They get these two visions, both of which are communicating the importance, the necessity 
for us as Christians to carry on the ministry of the word in the world, even in the midst of destruction and persecution and evil, we carry on the ministry of the word because we are the instruments by which God offers salvation and warns of damnation. We are the ones that have that responsibility. So we're encouraged in those visions to keep doing our thing, focus on the gospel, make disciples, preach to everyone, invite the wicked to flee from God's wrath by finding safety in Jesus, just like we did. Then, when that's all over, those encouraging words, we get back to the vision of the seven trumpets, and we're finally ready to talk about the seventh trumpet and what's actually happening. And in verse 15, what we see is that the seventh trumpet is sounded by the angel and these loud voices erupt in heaven. So now this vision, right? It used to be showing us what's going on in the earth, the first six trumpets. Now it's what's going on in heaven. When the sixth and final trumpet goes, all these voices in heaven are basically saying, the kingdom of Christ has finally won. That's what they're saying, in short. Look again. The seventh, seal, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus won. That's the seventh trumpet. In other words, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, it means, oh, now we're at the end. Smash cut to when Jesus returns. And there will be no more sin, no more injustice. There will be no more waiting for Christ to make full and complete application of all of our redemption. It will be in that moment complete. So evil is over. The devil is done. The world is completely wrecked. We have this great hope that that seventh trumpet shows us that in the end, Christ wins. It fits in with the theme of the entire book. He will be victorious. Now, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. We understand the, the, the idea here, right? That the kingdom of God is, is the redemptive reign of Jesus Christ by which he makes all things new. And that reign is going on right now. But it isn't exhaustive, comprehensive, and complete in the sense that uh, it removes all evil. We still see evil and corruption and persecution and all kinds of, of, of afflictions of God's people. We see evil triumphing oftentimes. So Christ is reigning, but he's only reigning in part until the end when he will reign completely and in full. The kingdom of the world the kingdom of the world is one that's run by the devil. You see, it's the victory of Christ and his church over the devil and his world. Now, some people don't like talking a lot about the devil. Some of y'all might not believe in the devil. To your own danger. And some of us don't like to give the devil uh, too much real estate uh, in our biblical thinking or in our theology. And to say something like, well, well the devil kind of runs the show here on earth. And we're like, I thought Jesus was sovereign. I thought God was sovereign and God ran the show. Absolutely. God is absolutely sovereign. God has decreed all things. That's how sovereign I think God is. Yet, we get this picture communicated in God's word that the devil is the God of this age, the God of this world, that he does rule, that he does have an impact here. It's his domain. It's where he is active. He... 
is an enemy occupying territory. Okay, so let me just give you a, a couple of passages. John chapter 12, verse 31 says, here we go. John 12, 31. Now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus says this. Jesus says, oh, listen, here's what I've come to do. I've come to take down the devil. And what is he called? The ruler. The ruler of this world where you and I live. That's sort of his title. That's sort of his evil job description. Because he doesn't rule like a, like a savior, like a kind savior, he rules as an evil tyrant, deceiving, lying, and destroying Look at, uh, or just listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here you see a couple of things, right? First of all, the devil is called the God of this world. And his job, like what he's constantly doing, what his passion is, where he's really gifted, is to deceive and to blind people from seeing the truth of the gospel. That's the kingdom of the world that has been setting itself up against the kingdom of God ever since sin entered in, ever since Genesis 3. And Christ, in the end crushes the enemy. When that trumpet blasts, his reign is exhaustive, complete, thorough, and fully applied. Listen to one other passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 22. And in context here, the apostle Paul is talking about the hope of the resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection, but when we will be raised at the second coming. So we're talking about the same event. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, we will be resurrected. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, Christ was raised first, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when Christ returns, those who belong to him who have died are raised from their graves. We meet Christ together. This is when the kingdom is completed. And it says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he does reign now, but he is in the process of putting these enemies under his feet. And in the end, when that trumpet sounds, then it is complete. That's what's happening in this vision at this point. And there are two truths that we're going to highlight as we look through the, these remaining verses, okay? And it goes back to this idea, like the, the righteous rule and the gracious presence of Christ is the comfort and hope of every Christian. So righteous rule of Christ, gracious presence of Christ. That's what I want us to see. So in verses 16 through 18, we see this righteous rule of Christ. And it begins with, with praise and thanksgiving. Okay, so you go to verse 16. And the 24 elders, who, who's that? Well, the 24 elders have come up a few times. We saw them in uh, Revelation 4, Revelation 5. Uh, we'll see them in Revelation uh, 19. 
right? So the, the 24 elders are representative in the vision of the church of God, or at least the church of God that has died and now is in heaven. But it represents saints, right? The, the Christians. So the 24 elders that represent maybe the totality of uh, the elect or, or the church, they are the 24 elders, and these 24 elders sit on their thrones before God. They fall on their faces, and they worshiped God, saying, and then they sing a kind of hymn. Now, what I love about this passage is that the praise and the thanksgiving that comes from the elders, that comes from the church, is specific. You want to know why it's specific? Because praise and thanksgiving must be specific or it's not praise or thanksgiving. We don't worship God generically. Thanks, God, for all the stuff, right? All the stuff? Like, when you see in Scripture praise and worship happening, God, most of the time, is given praise for who he is in his character and what he has done his person, and his work. And here, they are thanking and praising God. They are worshiping God as the eternal, holy God, person who is sovereign over all his work, or at least part of his work. Look at verse 17. Here's what they're saying. We give thanks to you, Lord God, almighty, sovereign, who is and who was eternal, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign work. So we have this God who is from everlasting to everlasting, no beginning, no end, the eternal God who is sovereign and in control of all things. He's worthy of praise just for being who he is. But they are specifically praising him and thanking him because he has begun to reign. Now, he's been reigning this whole time, but this is a different kind of reign. This is the full, complete like reign that covers every square inch of the created world. The redemptive reign here is fully applied. No more evil, no more corruption, only peace in paradise. So this praise is specific. And this is just an aside. It's just a good reminder for you. If you struggle in your prayer life, specifically when it comes to not just asking for things from God, if you struggle with like, how do I praise God? Like, what's it, what does it mean to, to like sort of adore God? Well, it means that you call to mind the truths about him. Like if, if the more you can recall about who God is in his person and what he has accomplished in his work, the more you have to praise him and the more you have to base your requests on. You say like, Lord, I praise you because you are a sovereign God that lets nothing slip through your fingers. You are in control of all things and you can do anything you want. Praise. Therefore, God, will you please wake me up tomorrow so I'm not late for church, right? You can do anything. Will you do that? Now, I know it's a silly example, but you get the point, right? You, can, you base the appeal that you make to God on who he is and what he does. Our confidence is rooted in him, in his excellencies that we are supposed to proclaim. Yes, praise and thanksgiving is specific and that fuels our prayer to be more robust anyway. The righteous rule of Christ is seen. The 24 elders fall on their faces. They're praising and they're worshiping God, saying like, you are holy, you are sovereign, you are reigning, and it's all because... The time has 
come. They've been waiting for this. The church has been waiting for this. We've been waiting for this ever since, ever since the devil deceived Adam and Eve. We've been waiting for this ever since we've seen innocent people afflicted, since Abel was killed by his brother Cain. Since we have to see or suffer abuse, sexual abuse, racism, since we have to suffer all of these evils in the world, we've been waiting for the time when it will all be brought to an end. When God will say, enough is enough. There will be an answer for every sin. And I'm making everything new. This is the time. Listen, verse 18. The nations, this is part of their song, the nations raged, right? The nations were in fury, rebellion against God, the world, the kingdom of the world, uh, led by the devil. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Oh, that's what happened. They're talking about this very moment. Your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged came. That's the implication, right? These are all the things that have, it's time for all of these things. Your wrath came, the time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Oh, it's finally time. It's why they're singing. It's why they're praising, because finally, one of their deepest needs, one of their, one of their greatest hopes, the complete application of redemption is here. The wicked are finally going to answer. And the righteous are finally going to be rewarded. Now, a couple of things to note. First of all, when we talk about the wrath and the judgment that is coming, it's, uh, it's been a part of our desire not to see people suffer for messing up, but it's a deep longing for righteousness to reign. And when you see evil people getting away with evil things, yes, it does hurt and frustrate. And sometimes we lose our cool when we talk about it. But the fundamental issue that we need is a balancing of justice scales. God, you do not tolerate sin. And yet it looks like a lot of the evil, wicked people in the world are getting away with horrible things. When are the scales going to be balanced? When will justice finally come? And this has been a part, a frustration of the people of God for a long time, this, this desire to see judgment finally happen. Listen to um, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? What? The nations rage. Same thing. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is speaking about Christ. And they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The nation's rage and plot and God sees it all it's not lost on him there will be a reckoning justice and judgment will come there will be no more waiting that's for us and there will be no more patience that's for God because God's patience does have a limit of course when our patience runs out then we sin that's usually what happens right you usually like I have I have I don't know, I think I have about three ounces of patience on me at any given time. 
Um, unfortunately, I burned through that very, very fast. So I don't, I don't have it about after 6 a.m. It's gone. Um, and when I lose my patience, then I'm entering into sin territory. And most of us do that, right? When he's like, I'm going to lose my patience, it means you're going to start screaming. When God loses his patience, he doesn't shift into sin mode. He just shifts into, uh, shifts into justice mode. It's like I've been patient, kind. I've given you every opportunity to repent of your sin, to acknowledge my lordship, to receive my offer of grace and forgiveness. I've given you every good gift you've ever had in your life. If you've never, you've never responded in faith towards me, well, my patience is now coming to an end, and now it's time for all sins to be answered. You see, Christ has answered for all of the sins of everyone who believes. Those sins are accounted for. But the rest of the sins... Well, people will have to pay for those themselves. So no more waiting for us when Christ returns, when that seventh trumpet is sounded, and no more patience for God. And then there are, is redemption for God's people. So there's judgment for the wicked, redemption for God's people, but it's talked about in, as, as a reward. Do you see that? It's the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both great and small, right? So... All of God's people are redeemed and rewarded. The problem with the idea of reward is that most of us, you know, we have a weird sort of relationship with that word. Because we think of reward as like, oh, okay, oh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a good boy, you get a reward, you know? And it's like, oh, so, so if I'm really good, I get a reward? Is that what it is? So I've got to earn it. Do we got to keep it? Do we got to maintain it? And this is not a reward that you earn. It is something that you are given. It is a gift. It is, it is an abundance of God's generosity directed towards you. It's called a reward, but it's not earned. It is a kindness. It is grace. And the reward that we get is to finally see Jesus face to face, to finally be close to God and to have the transformation of our souls and bodies complete so that we don't struggle with sin anymore. Where all disease and death and corruption in the world is removed, we benefit from all of this. That's our reward, and we receive it as a gift from God for free. Uh, just to give you one frame of reference here, uh, Colossians, reward is mentioned quite a bit in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We are inheritance, right? right? The inher we are co-heirs with Christ. We will inherit the kingdom and every spiritual blessing will be ours in full experience. That's a gift that we get. And that future hope, right, that eager anticipation should be something that impacts how we live now. And this is our comfort and our hope that Christ, though he righteously reigns now, his righteous reign and rule in the end will be complete. It comforts us now to know that he is involved. He has not forgotten us. He has not turned a blind eye. Things aren't slipping through his fingers. He's keeping track of it all and he's taking us somewhere. And it gives us hope because we know what's going to happen in the end. We know that not only will good beat evil, but God will beat the devil. And Christ will fully reign and we will be with him. The second, we're going to be brief on this. Uh, the, the second uh, truth here to highlight is the gracious presence of Christ. So look at verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, uh, thunder an earthquake, and heavy 
hail. Okay, so the vision, this particular vision is coming to a close. The last trumpet has been sounded. It's Christ's return. It's the day of judgment. And we suddenly get a picture of God's temple in heaven. Now, the temple was built in Israel, right? In Jerusalem, the temple was where the people of God gathered, not only for fellowship and, and sort of cultural engagement, but it's fundamentally where they worshiped, right? It's where high priests offered sacrifices for the people of Israel. Um, it's where the, the holy place was, where only the, the high priests could go in and offer up prayers, incense, and sacrifices for God's people. And then there was the most holy place inside of that, where only the high priest could go once a year. Now, here's what it says. God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. So the Ark of the Covenant, if you're, if you're new to the Bible or you're just, you're, you haven't gone very deep, there's two arks. There's the boat and the box, okay? Now, Noah's Ark is a boat. Moses' Ark is a box, Okay, it's, that, that's the best way to think about it. So this is not the boat, this is the box. Now, this was a box that God commanded Israel to create under, uh, you know, Mosaic era. And it was, it was a box that was made of a certain kind of wood. It was overlaid with gold. It had to be carried in a very specific way and not touched lest you, the filthy, unclean sinner, uh, come into contact with where God dwells because that's the whole point. The golden box was said to be where the presence of God dwelt in, in a special way for the nation of Israel. On top of the box was the lid and on top of the lid were these two angelic cherubim uh, and that was said to be where God's presence was inside the box you had a few things but of note right now is that um, the two tablets upon which the ten commandments were carved were in the box this was carried around it was it, it led Israel in some battles uh, it got placed into the tabernacle into that holy of holy place later into the temple in that holy of holy place that's where it was and so the priest once a year would go in there to offer a sacrifice and where the presence of God was said to dwell he would take the blood of a lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of Israel and sprinkle it right there on what they called the mercy seat to symbolize how God will forgive sinners of their sins and draw them into his presence through reconciliation. It was all ultimately about Christ. Thing is, uh, the ark was stolen and destroyed. So it's gone. By the time this is written, well, <laughs> by the time this is written, uh, the, the temple has probably already been destroyed again. But, but this is a gone thing. So it's interesting here to, to, to see exactly what, how this vision works. Hey, listen, you're looking in heaven and you're seeing how the church is singing this praise like, oh, we're so happy that the day has finally come. And now look, there's the temple. Oh, wow, the temple, there's the temple. And look, what's in the temple is the Ark of the Covenant. It's God's presence that says the temple is open. There are no longer barriers in each court. It's not just the high priest that goes into the Holy of Holies. It's open. We all have access to the presence of God. And listen, the presence of God is not always a great thing. It's like the presence of a good parent is a good thing unless you did a bad thing. Then the presence of your parent is awkward. Like if you, if you had a good relationship with your parent and your parent like comes into your room, you're like, hey, what's up? But if you did something wrong and you know that they know, and they come into your room, you're like, ugh. Because now the nearness of your parent is not so enjoyable. In, similar, in a similar way, for God to draw near to somebody, it's either for judgment or it's for mercy. It's for judgment or redemption. It's one or the other. But for those of us who have been redeemed, it is our delight 
Now, his gracious presence, that's what we are talking about. But even here, in this image, right, with, with the Ark of the Covenant, there still is this echo and reality of judgment because there's peals of thunder and lightning and an earthquake, hail. So God's nearness is judgment for the wicked, but for us, it is a gracious presence that redeems us. And here's the comfort, right, and the hope. The comfort is that God is with us now. Even before Christ returns, God is with us. Jesus is in us by his Holy Spirit. God is with us in the midst of the chaos and the confusion and the frustration and and, and all the questions that we have in the midst of our discouragement and depression. God is with us. That's a comfort. The hope is that when Christ returns, then we will be with God. Like now... We will see the Savior. Like he's with us now. He's for us now, but then we will actually be together. And that's our future hope. You see, the the righteous rule and the gracious presence of Christ, these are comforts and hopes that form every Christian. So Revelation, here's here's the bottom line. The book of Revelation and this vision in particular and this seventh trumpet even more specifically It all tells us what has happened in the past and what is happening now and what will happen in the future. And these are the principles, these are the truths that help us to make sense of our chaotic, crazy, sometimes painful lives. Because we know, oh, God is with me. He is for me. He is at work. He has not abandoned me. He is victorious in the end over all evil in the world. And so now I can persevere with the, with the assurance that I know how this is going to turn out. I don't have to wonder. I'm not guessing. And this in turn puts a burden upon us to be a people who share this good news that Christ, yes, he does reign, but his reign will come to full fruition in the end and the end is rapidly approaching Our privilege is to encourage all who will listen to flee from the wrath of God, to heed the warning signs of God's judgment before that seventh trumpet sounds, that they might enter into the joy of their creator who has become their redeemer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would not just remind us of the truths that we saw in scripture today, but that, Lord, that you would make those truths fruitful truths in our lives. Lord, we, want to, we want to be encouraged. We want our heads to be lifted up, Lord. Some of us are, are, are downright spiritually frustrated. God, would you bring a brightness to our faith that is rooted in a joy of our salvation that is further strengthened by this, this assurance that we have that God isn't wasting time. He's waiting for the right time to make everything new again. Lord, as we worship in song, as we sing your praises, we pray that you would continue to change us and fit us, not just for heaven, but for a life of waiting for heaven as well. In Christ's name, amen.